Hey baddies, did you miss me last week? I missed you all so much. So what happens? If you are not in the Facebook group, Mercury in retrograde is in our shadow period. Well, I mean, it's, it's happening tomorrow now, but uh, it's in the shadow period while I'm in Bali. And I think it just saw me having too much fun. You know, I was surfing and by surfing, I mean, I laid on the board in the water, but couldn't get up. I was feeding cute pigs at a Balinese farm. I was eating all the chicken satay I could find. And Mercury was like, you know what? Homegirl is having the time of her life. So we're going to come in here and mess some shit up. So <laughs> the episode that I recorded before I left, which I think took me about six, seven hours. You know, these episodes, they take a chunk of time. Um, I went to upload it and it was warped. It was just un usable. So I'm blaming Mercury. I'm blaming Mercury because that's the thing to do, but also because it was a technology thing. So I'm going to say it was Mercury coming after me. However, it was probably something I did in my rush to like try to get these episodes recorded and get ready to go literally across the world. So yeah, it was gone, but you know what? I'm glad it happened because now we're going to have an even better episode and we're going to have so much to talk about. I have so many things I want to tell you about Bali and um, I want to tell you about the other ways Mercury has come for me. <laughs> has it just been me? How has the shadow period been? You know, and when you hear this, it's starting on Samhain. So how has it been? Has it been okay? Has it been treating you well? It, it really has had some designs on me. But you know, it's the same thing that I was talking about in the episode. Last episode, I'm a little thrown off. I don't know what day it is. I haven't known what day it is since I crossed the equator. But the last episode, yeah, I think so, where I was saying my car broke down. <laughs> Just everything that could happen could happen. I feel like even though I'm experiencing things that I should, or not even sure, but I'm conditioned to look at as a disappointment or a setback, it's actually leading me on a better path. So maybe that is the lesson that we should be looking at going into this Mercury and retrograde period is that things aren't necessarily going bad and things aren't necessarily a nightmare situation, but it's pushing us back on the course that we're supposed to be on. Case in point. <laughs> so get up, fly my little self. Well, I didn't fly myself, but I took Virgin Australia to Brisbane and then to Sydney. And we're talking about, I've been up for maybe 28 hours by the time I get to my hotel. I'm not going to name and shame them because I think they were just having an off day, honestly. But I get to the hotel, I get to check in early, which was great. And I go to my room and I'm looking around and I'm like, are my drapes hung over the two chairs in here? Why is that window wide open and blindingly light coming through? So I walk over and I touch them to make sure and they're wet. They're wet, like sopping wet. Okay, check one. So I go, uh, and by the way, I've already obviously walked down the hallway to get to my room and in the hallway are just bags of trash and dirty laundry, <laughs> which I guess they were, you know, in the middle of cleaning then. But I mean, I've stayed obviously at many hotels because that's, you know, what I do for work. And, um, I've never encountered that before, but okay. You know what? Two things happen. It's cool. So I stay in the room for a bit. I do my bed bug, bug check. I always do that no matter where I stay. Um, make sure you always do that because bed bugs are a nightmare to have a nightmare to hold and a nightmare to get rid of. So make sure you always check the seams, check the sheets, uh, you know, get into like the crevices of chairs. Just be safe. When you go into a hotel room for me to you, put your suitcase in the bathtub first, just you can just never be too careful about bed bugs. They are little demons. Okay, so I have them in a room for them for a minute, kind of just like sussing it out. And I get a headache because the room I realize smells overwhelmingly like chlorine. 
So we're at three now. I'm like, you know what? I think three is my limit. I got to get out of here. So and I've never done this in my life. I've never left a hotel early. So I go to the front desk and to their credit, they were incredibly kind and gracious and they wanted to upgrade me and, you know, tried to help me out as much as they could. But I was like, I think my spirit is just leading me to leave this hotel. So here's who I am going to name and shame. Chase Bank. I have the Chase Reserve Preferred you heard card. I can't remember the name is exactly, but I pay a pretty hefty annual fee because it's a travel card. So I get my points and I can use the lounge and yeah, 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 yeah. So I use ultimate rewards to book a lot of my travel if I'm not working with a hotel. So I go in to the website to cancel and it says, oh, you can't cancel. You have to call this number. The number is not toll free. <laughs> so I'm in Australia and I'm getting charged to, I can't wait to see my phone bill. It's going to be a nightmare. So I keep saying nightmare in this episode. <laughs> I hope I don't make myself have one. Okay. So, um, yeah, you can't cancel. So then I have to call. So then I find a toll free number and I call them and I'm like, Hey, I have to check out this hotel. They told me there's a penalty, like whatever. I don't feel like fighting it. I just want to get my points back so I can book the next hotel I'm going to. Okay, sure. Put me on hold for about 10 minutes. Um, our system's down company wide. Hi, Mercury. I see you again, just totally jacking up technology. So I was like, listen, it's 1.32 right now. I have to be out of this hotel by two o'clock or going to charge me for an additional night, which to me, I was like, I've only been here 30 minutes, so I should just be charged for this night because technically check-in isn't until two, but like I was, there were too many battles to fight, so I couldn't fight all of them. I mean, on a good day, I could, but just like not yesterday. So they're like, our system's down. Okay. And I'm like, well, if I book this hotel that I want to go to on the literal day that I have to go in, can I then get a credit back on my points or, you know, get a credit from Chase because it's Chase's fault that I'm going to have to pay fully out of pocket for this and not mine. Um, no, well, I can't guarantee you we can do that. Okay. So can I at least get an email confirmation saying we have this conversation and, you know, just outlining everything that we've talked about? Oh no, we're not allowed to send emails from this site. Okay. So you telling me in the year of Lilith, 2019, a bank can't send me an email <laughs> from a health center? I don't think so, honey. So I go back downstairs. The front desk again is very gracious and says, listen, we'll give you until four o'clock. We won't charge you at two as long as you can call back and get it settled. So I booked a hotel, paid totally out of, cap, uh, out of pocket and just kept telling myself, you know, it's more points. It'll be fine. And get an Uber and go to my new hotel. Finally get Chase on the phone. Their system is finally up. Thank you, Mercury, for siding with me on that one before 4 o'clock. And I get it taken care of and I get canceled. And, you know, all that to say, that very lengthy story <laughs> to say that I'm glad it happened. Because I am at the Shangri-La in Sydney now and it's everything I needed. I'm so happy here. This is the trip that I wanted. And this is a trip that I feel like I deserve. Because, you know, I deserve good. And you deserve good. We all do. So yeah, it turned out to be a splurge and yeah, yeah I'm going to have to pay for it, but I really do feel that I ended up exactly where I'm supposed to be. So I think that is going to be the lesson going into this Mercury retrograde. And maybe you've been feeling that already too, that in the moment we might bitch and moan and say, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't going how I'm supposed to. This is a hassle and a headache, but I think it might be moving us back to the right path, or at least that's my wishful thinking going in. You know what I said last time? And I had the best Mercury retrograde ever over the summer, that if you go into it with the right mentality, with a positive outlook, maybe we can 
not affect how it's going to affect us, but we can affect how we react to it. So yeah, it's, it's coming tomorrow. Let's just all try to be as positive as possible. Even if you have been going through the ringer a little bit like I have, cause goodness knows. Oh, and also I get to the airport in Bali. <laughs> get first person in line to check in. That's never happened in my life. And I get to the desk and they go, Oh, do you have a visa? You have to have a visa as an American to go to Australia. And I said, huh, no, what was that? <laughs> Excuse me. I had no idea. I, I have never gone on a trip and not looked up visa requirements. And I swear I looked it up for Australia and I didn't see anything. So yeah, uh, turns out if you're American heads up, well, other countries as well, you can go online, you can apply for it right then it's 20 uh, Australian dollars, which I think works out to like 17 American and you get it immediately. And then you can happily enter the country for a year, but <laughs> that's another thing. I had no idea I needed a visa, I had to go online to get it. The website wouldn't load, wouldn't load at first. Mercury just got me at every corner, but it ended up perfectly. So not too many to complaints. Just let's all be careful these next three weeks. And I do have a full Mercury and much, oh my gosh, hi. <laughs> I'm about to talk about an old episode where I haven't even introduced the podcast. Hi, welcome to Bad Witch Podcast, the podcast where we are going to get our witch shit together one spell at a time. So yeah, if this is your first time here, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, um, thank you so much. But if you didn't know, we do have a Mercury and Retrograde episode way towards the beginning. I think it's called Mercury Ben Retrograde. I'm almost certain that's what it's called. But if you go back and you see something with Mercury in the title, that is definitely it. Oh my gosh, wait, speaking of Mercury, one more thing. So after I told the front desk I was leaving, I went back up to, or I went down to tell them I had a headache, damp, uh, damp drapes. That's hard to say situation. I went back up to my room to collect my things and the maintenance guy was in my room. Um, all of my things were in there, my passport, my money, my laptop, my camera, my everything I brought with me. And he didn't even have the door propped open. So I, when I walked in, I could go, oh, hello, I see you're here, you know, working on whatever. No, I walked in and was like, hi. And the only reason I knew that he was the maintenance person was because when I was waiting for the elevator to go down, I saw him come in and out. So imagine if I would have just walked in not having seen him. <laughs> oh my gosh. And not only was he in my room with all of my things without any warning, but the like sopping, dripping wet drapes were laid out across my bed as he was examining them. I don't know what was going, it was the strangest thing. So yeah, even if he would have gotten it fixed, I would have had wet, moldy, maybe drapes all over my, y'all. <laughs> anyway, you know, Mercury's working hard, but the baddies are working harder. So we are going to be just fine. So yeah, go back and check out that Mercury and retrograde episode. I go through all kinds of ways to uh, basically survive it. And I also talk about what it does and oh, oh, does it do so much? <laughs> you know, and for the, every time we have Mercury retrograde since we started this podcast, every week we'll just do a how is Mercury on your neck this week update and definitely send me your stories and I will share them if you're comfortable about um, how Mercury is just, is just trying it this time. But you know what? We're going to persevere. I believe in us. So I just want to share a little bit about Bali because honestly, the entire time I was there, I was thinking about us. I was thinking about the baddies and what a spiritual experience it was. And, you know, people like to say they like eat, pray, love their way through these quote unquote exotic countries. And a part of me wasn't, I didn't want to say I was a skeptic, but a part of me was just like, are people having an authentic experience or are they having an experience that they think they should be having? And I can absolutely tell you it was an authentic experience. Um, 
you know, just the sheer abundance of temples everywhere that the temple and spirituality is such an intrinsic part of the Balinese lifestyle that, you know, families have their own temples on the grounds of their compounds and in their villages and that they just celebrate and revere everything. I mean, every day they're making offerings, they're lighting the incense. The women are the ones that make the offerings and I got to do that and it was really incredible. I felt really honored that I got to make one and you'll just see them on the ground. You'll smell the incense burning. You know, in that time that something is being honored and something is being treasured and just the spiritual process is not something that they think about. It just is in the lifestyle. I, it's something that I was like, damn, I love this. You know, not that I, the thing that inspired me to think about as a witch is that I don't need to say, okay, now is the time that I meditate. I need to take 10 minutes to sit with my manifestation box. I need to make sure I light my candles tonight. You know, it's not something they don't sit there and plan, plan, plan. It's just a part of their life. And so I'm going to try to make my witchcraft a part of my life as opposed to something I have to sit down and say, okay, I need to make sure I do this today. You know, like, I don't know if I'm explaining it that clearly, but it's, it's something that they don't even give thought to in the way of like, oh, I have to do this. It's just there. It's so amazing. So yeah, you see the offerings and the incense and the temples are stunning and you go inside and just the statues and the, um, the like ornate design of everything. It just blows your mind, you know? And I, there was about a thousand times during the trip where I thought, can I just live here? Like, can I just live like this? <laughs> Genuinely the most kind, most generous people I've ever met in my entire life. There is no, in no way that they won't take care of you and welcome you just to welcome these strangers from across the world, not knowing, you know, what they believe or what, what they're up to really, I mean, no, and hopefully it's nefarious, but you don't know what people's intentions are to welcome them into your temple, into your home, you know, to put the sarong on them yourself as, as a part of the religious ceremony to explain to them, to let them break bread with you. We ate with families all the time. It was just absolutely incredible. But yeah, um, one particular, we went to a village and we got to like carry the offerings in on our head. And it's, it was so cool. We got to put on the sarongs and we went into the temple. And um, the way that the young man who was doing the tour for us explained was that his grandparents are like, he lives, I believe, with three other families, but they're all related to him. And there's, 10, 15 people total that lived in their one, I keep saying compound. I don't know if that's the right word. I think it is. I'm sure there's a better Balinese word, but I, all I could figure out was how to say was, um, nope, I already forgot it. I knew how to say thank you, but I forgot it once I got to Australia. Anyway, so he explains to us that his grandparents, grandmother and grandfather are like the spiritual leaders, um, of their compound that they live on. And they actually made us these bracelets that they blessed for us. It was so beautiful. And so the bracelet, you wear it until it falls off. I'm sure y'all, you know, heard about that kind of thing before. It's kind of like a prayer bracelet or like a luck bracelet. You just wear it till it falls off. And then whatever your intention was, or you were praying for, or you were wishing for it has like come to fruition. It served its purpose. It's in its way kind of its own like witchy tool, you know? So yeah, they're red, black, and white. And it represents Brahma, uh, Shiva, and Vishnu. So, you know, those are some gods that I've heard of before. You know how I feel about my Indian goddesses. So, yeah, I just felt really welcome and really whole and warm. And it was incredible. So if you are ever going to Bali and, oh, my gosh, if I can find a way to get the baddies to Bali, if we could do a retreat or something, it's on the forefront of my mind. I mean, I know we got to go to Salem first. Don't get me wrong. But I think a Bali retreat maybe like, I don't know. 2021, 2022 would be amazing, especially if I could take you the same places I went. So the only other place I wanted to share is there is um, this water temple 
and you go into the temple and you put on your first sarong and then you go kind of into this changing area and you put on this, I guess, kind of ceremonial outfit, I would call it. It's a green, um, it's a green sarong, but you tie it in a certain way and you have a red belt that you tie in a certain way and you go into this pool and there are fountains at each stop. I think there were 18 total, except you don't do two of them because those are for ancestors only. And you go in and at each stop, it's you can do whatever you want. You can pray, you can set up an intention, you can ask for something to be taken away, you can be asked for something to be given. Um, you know, kind of, I just kind of kept thinking of it as spell work and as manifesting and all the things that we do and talk about on this podcast. And then you go up to the fountain, um, and you spritz, spritz? Is that the right word? <laughs> I think that's the right word. You take the water directly from the fountain because it's like the purest, clearest water. It's so beautiful. It comes directly from the mountain and you put it in your hand and you splash, splash. That's what I'm thinking of. You splash it into your open mouth three times and then you splash it over your head three times. So yeah, it is kind of like this baptism in a way. And when I tell you in the process of doing this, I broke down and cried, was like sobbing, shivering. I just felt like I had so much taken away from me that needed to be purged. And I felt like I was being heard so loudly. And, you know, I was specifically talking to Lakshmi then because she had kind of made herself known to me earlier in the Bali trip. And by the end, I just remember my heart was racing and I was out of breath and I felt like a transformed person. I was, I was a new person and I feel like I am a new person now. I, it was absolutely incredible. So yeah, Bali retreat, baddie Bali, <laughs> Bali, Bali, Bali retreat, 2021, 2022. I'm going to make this happen. I don't know how yet, but you know what? I'm going to ask universe to provide and I'm going to manifest it. And we're going to go do that fountain again, because that was absolutely amazing. Um, was there anything else? There, everything I did in Bali, I was like, oh, I got to tell you all about this. And now that I'm sitting here, I care about it. Um, other than that, just that the temples are built in like the north east corners of like the homes because of their sacred mountain being in the northeast of the country or on the island rather. Um, so yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that they deal with the cardinal directions in the same way we do. And, um, oh, and with the offerings, one thing that I really loved, and this is definitely something that you can do in your shrines and your altars is that along with the traditional um, offering that you see with the flowers, uh, you can actually put in, you know, especially if it's for an ancestor, or for someone that has passed on, you can put in things that were really important to them. So I was at the fountain uh, or the water temple rather where you do the fountains and people had placed them with cigarettes and some people have placed them with chicken, like chicken meat in them because I guess that's what their ancestors favorite thing to eat. And some people place money. It was just, it was so cool. I can't really reiterate enough how amazing it is to see a culture that does not make their spirituality separate of themselves, but it is just a part of their everyday life. So I think we should all kind of strive for that too and not think, oh, I have to make time to meditate or, oh, I have to make time to light my candles or, oh, I have to make time to smudge. But instead, it's just something that we do like muscle memory. You know, we get up in the morning, we meditate, we smudge, we do our candles, we do our rituals, we cast a circle, all that stuff. It's not separate from our everyday lives. It's absolutely part of it because, you know, we're witches no matter what we do, whether we practice or not. So yeah, Bali's take baddie 2020, 2021. We are going to make this happen. I let's do some spells. <laughs> you know what? Damn it. That's what I should have put in my manifestation box, but I didn't know how amazing Bali was going to be, but, uh, shoot. It might even be better than what I put in there. 
it's not my salad challenge manifestation, but nothing is stopping. By the way, nothing is stopping me or any of you from doing the manifestation box all over again next month. It, we could do it every month if there's something different you want to focus on, or if you want to strengthen the thing that you're focused on now. I know I saw a few people in the group saying, you know, I never did it. Life absolutely got in the way and that's fine. Some of you won't find this podcast until Halloween day. Some of you won't find it until December. You know, some of you won't find it until next year and you haven't missed out on anything. If you couldn't get it together this time, because whatever the reason, maybe you were just too intimidated to do it. Maybe you, it stressed you out to try to think of one thing. And that is totally understandable. I talked about my anxiety last episode. Everything stresses me out. But yeah, you didn't fail. You didn't miss out. The door has not closed forever. You can do a manifestation box anytime you feel called to do it. So if you want to start on November 1st, go for it. If you want to start on December 1st, go for it. If you want to do it for two months instead of one, you're not doing it wrong. And it's okay if you couldn't get it together because you always have a new chance to start and to try it out. So don't stress yourself out too much. I mean, literally, I have mine going for the Samhain Challenge. And then November 1st, I'm starting a new one for Bali (laughs) because like it or not, I'm making you all come with me. I just want us to have chicken satay and beach vibes and have a good life together. So yeah, we deserve good. And you know, in fact, if we put all of our powers together, we can maybe summon it up for real. Like our powers combined, but instead of Captain Planet, it's a Bali trip. So baddies take Bali 2020, 2021. And honestly, good thing it might be a year or two or five from now, however our magic works out, because it's going to take me that long to mentally, physically, and spiritually prepare to be that hot again. (laughs) You know, your girl does not like going outside. And I feel like, you know what? Yeah. Okay. I just realized I kept getting, um, uh, oh, I can't remember. I don't have my cards. Not Coventina. I kept getting Cordelia. I kept getting Cordelia right before I left. And I get it now. When she said I was going to go outside, she meant I was going to go outside. Like I was not going to be inside until I put my head on a pillow at night. But you know what? Another amazing thing, even though I always say like, I hate going outside, I hate sweating, I hate being hot. All of that being outside brought me so much peace and so much joy and so much happiness and such a stellar experience. So Cordelia, I will listen to you from now on. I will stop being such a brat. When I get back to the States, I won't just like sit in my room and light candles and mumble spells. (laughs) I'm actually going to do it. So yeah, we're going to work it out. We're going to be hot, but that's okay. And we're going to be outside, which all of you green witches are going to love anyway. It's just going to be me who's pouting about it. (laughs) But from one beautiful possible retreat destination to another, let's finally get ourselves over to Salem and talk about all there is to talk about, which for me means starting with Tichaba and really talking about Tichaba and not just saying her name in relation to the Salem witch trials, but understanding how there may have been no Salem witch trials without her, that there may have been no practicing of magic without her. She is such an important key figure in history and such an important key figure in the story. And, you know, she really becomes a footnote. I mean, there's so many people that have heard of the Salem Witch Trials, right? It is a huge part of American history. But how many of those people can name Tichaba? And she's just right there at the beginning of it. And had she not been a Black woman, had she not been an enslaved woman, had she not been a othered or been a foreigner, you know, quote unquote, then you know, would we even be having this discussion of, oh, she's bewitching people or she's teaching the children to be witch or she's bewitching them. You know, it all really stems from her. And it's, it's so important that we keep 
her memory alive and that we acknowledge her and we talk about her because who else was then, you know, in the 1700s who's saying, gosh, let me make sure while I'm recording all this history, I definitely get this enslaved black woman's info too. <laughs> like no one. So I want to be one of the people that make sure that Tituba is known about and her name is out there. And in fact, on my very first viewing of American Horror Story Coven, of which there has been mm, 10,000 because I watch it all the time. I love it so much. Um, you know, Angela Bassett name checks Tichaba. I can't remember the exact scene. And trust me, honey, I went back and I tried to look it up and I just could not suss it out. But there's a scene where Angela Bassett is talking to Jessica Lange. And, you know, they had a very contentious relationship, you know, the voodoo versus the witchcraft. And she makes reference to Tichaba bringing the magic here and to Tichaba teaching the magic to, you know, to the witches and that the magic was really stemming from her and the magic is really inside of us. And that just meant a lot to me because again, you hear about Salem so much, you hear about witches and witchcraft so much, but you don't hear about Tichaba. And the fact that Ryan Murphy and Brad Volchuk, I'm, I'm not sure his name, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's husband and all the writers that they did the research, that they made reference to her, that they spoke that name out loud it really, I don't know, it really was just important. And it was kind of for me the same thing I thought when I watched The Craft for the first time and I saw a black witch, I was like, oh my God, I'm one of those. I can be that too because you just don't see that much representation. So shout out to American Horror Story for coming. If you remember that scene, you know exactly what I'm talking about because they were going head to head, honey. <laughs> so yeah, it's about to be titch of a time all up and through here. But before we do that, of course, we have to do our Patreon shout outs just real quick. And I want to say another huge thank you. I mean, I know I say every week, I can never say it enough, but so many people signed up this week. Well, since the last episode, at least, <laughs> I don't know what day or time it is. So I want to start with them and say thank you so much to Kelly, Emily, Teresa, and Victoria, who are our newest Patreon baddies. And then as always, a huge special thank you to Maria, Crystal, Maya, Aurora, Celine, Kristen, Adam, Brandy, Brent, Kara, Becca, Alicia, Nolling, Heidi, Mackenzie, Stephanie, Ashley, Lena, Vanessa, Sasha, Brett, Tiani, Amber, Courtney, Elizabeth, Carla, Aaron, Shannon, and Amanda. I think we're at 30 now. So that's really exciting. Thank you so much for all that. It really means so much to me. Um, I know I said last week that it just, it just helps a little bit that I can like give more time to Bad Witch with that support. So y'all are the best and you're all the best just for listening and downloading and telling people and reviewing hopefully five stars. <laughs> but I really truly do appreciate all of it. Oh, and let me say, speaking of appreciation, because y'all been killing it with buying all the merch, I set up a promo code to get 25% off anything in the merch store. Uh, you just have to use code BADDY, which I think is pretty easy to remember, but I will also uh, post it because I'll forget it. I'll say it's like so easy. I'll be like, what was my code again? Uh, but yeah, I haven't set until, oh my gosh, I haven't set until Salwin. Well, you're going to hear this day before Salwin. So just kidding. I'm going to go and extend it. I don't want to give you one day's notice if you actually want to buy something. So yeah, I'll just extend it through um, uh, November 30th. 30th I September, November. Yeah, November 30th. You know, because it's holidays coming up. I don't know if you want to treat yourself or get something for one of your friends that, you know, listens to the podcast. Whatever. So, uh, yeah, 25% off. Use code BADDY. I will definitely extend it. If you go to use it after tomorrow and it's not extended or it's not showing up, just be like, Nikki, girl, where's my extension at? And I will handle it. All right. So let's officially get ourselves over to Salem and start talking about Tichaba. I'm feeling very, like, 
Sophia Petrillo, picture it, Sicily, 1938. <laughs> I'm going to go back in time to start telling the story. But picture it, Salem, Massachusetts, 1997. Mickey is 10 years old. She is already five foot nine. It is awkward, <laughs> but we're rolling with it. So I've talked about before, um, when I was 10, I went to go visit my favorite aunt and my, at the time, three, four-year-old baby cousin. And I was hell-bent and insistent that we go to Salem because, you know, real witch kid shit. So we go to Salem and I've talked about the rich, the witch museum. And you know, what's so funny is being a witch and having a hard time with the word witch. My tongue is too big or something. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I have talked about the witch museum and how I have like the vaguest memories about the devil that like came out of the ceiling and the red way it was lit up and like smoke I, and I might be making the smoke part up and like disembodied screams of, and sounds of people being crushed and all that stuff. But the one thing that has stuck out to me the most and the one thing that like shook me the most in 1997 in that very moment was learning about Tichaba. Like it's such a hard thing to describe, but I feel like when I heard her name for the first time, it felt familiar. I already knew her name before they said it. <laughs> it's strange. You know, kind of what I mean? Like when you connect with certain goddesses or you connect with certain angels or whomever, you know them before they're presented to you in a way. So yeah, I just remember hearing the name Tichaba and already being like, huh? Like, you know, dog ears go up, <laughs> turn, like cock my head to the side. And then they start talking about her. And I was like, wait a minute. Wait, uh-huh. Tell me, I need to know everything you can possibly tell me in this moment. I'm also pretty sure I like went back to school that fall and I was in fifth grade and I'm almost certain I just started telling everyone I was a descendant of Tetra. <laughs> just the things I would like say out loud. This is also the same year I was faking, um, knowing how to palm read because I was trying to trick the guy, not trick. I mean, I was trying to trick him. <laughs> the guy that I had a crush on into thinking it was my initials that I was his soulmate. But uh, yeah, that didn't, uh, didn't turn out. I actually saw him not that long ago. And boy, oh boy, I was running the wrong trick on the wrong person. But anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm almost certain I went back to school and told everyone I was a descendant of Tichaba, which what I know now as a 32-year-old witch is not technically incorrect. So I know I, and we're going to get into all this, trust me. But I know in the Lilith episode, I talked about us being the daughters of Lilith. I consider myself that very much, but I also, as a woman of color, as a black woman, consider myself a descendant of Tichaba, which really only differs in the fact that there's different cultural traditions and ancestral influences in the kind of witchcraft that I practice and also in the kind of witch that I just naturally in my DNA and in my bones am. But, you know, it kind of all leads to the question of, was Tichaba even a witch? <laughs> can't definitely be debated because we unfortunately like I said before you know six late 1600s we just didn't have enough people that cared about the enslaved population to get their story to understand anything about them so do I consider Tichaba a witch yes <laughs> I mean, it could just be according to me but I mean there are a ton of practitioners of magic not necessarily just witches that believe her to have been a witch or, you know, the conception of what we call a witch, modern day, she may have called herself else, something else, or have been referred to as something else, especially um, with like being in Venezuela as a part of the Arawak tribe, as opposed to being in America as an enslaved person. But 
I do believe her to have been some kind of practitioner of magic. I do think that I share her as a common ancestor with other women of color that are witches or identify as other practitioners of magic. I, she, I don't know. Like the number one proof to me is I just feel it in my bones. I feel it in my DNA. I feel like she was, it, it's just something that's like an intuition. It's a feeling in my gut, but also, you know, coming from that tribe in Venezuela, just the intrinsic magic that's there, the focus on, you know, shamanism and connecting with the natural world and, you know, rituals and practices and spell work of their own making. I just, I think she is. <laughs> I mean, there is no definitive proof this way or the other, but if you ask a lot of people, then we'll say, yeah, that's, that's one of our witch moms. And also just the way, and we'll get deeper into this in just a bit, but the way that she was able to totally enthrall, and I say, honestly, bewitch uh, the crowds in Salem when she had to do her testimony, I don't think that's anything short of witchcraft. Like the way that she was able to tell tales and string things together and just enrapture people like, oh, sounds pretty witchy to me. <laughs> but let's go. Oh, let's, you know, let's do like a little biography before I get into the story, which going back over it to like get ready for this episode, it is bananas. It is so cuckoo bananas that there was ever a time period that was so ripe for these kind of accusations, this kind of fear, this kind of persecution. Although I'm saying all that out loud and I'm like, are we not living in a similar time right now where a lot of things are just bolstered by fear and a lot of things are accusatory in nature and persecution is running amok? Yeah, you know, dude, hey, I'm going to say an extra protection spell for all of us witches because, you know, I, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's that much safer for any of us that are different in any way. But back to Tichaba. So she, like I mentioned, was thought to have originally been from Venezuela, a member of the Arawak tribe. That is A-R-A-W-A-K, if you'd like to look it up on your own, in case I am mispronouncing it. As we know, I love to do, well, I don't love to do it, but I do do that a lot. Um, and she was thought to have been kidnapped in, um, around the ages of like 10, 11, 12 and brought into slavery, which is how she found herself in Barbados and where she was purchased by Samuel Parrish. Now Samuel, Samuel Parrish was originally from Massachusetts, had come down to Barbados. I believe he was, he had owned like a sugar plantation, but he definitely had, you know, connections and roots to Massachusetts. And... This is what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> I don't think it's right. What I wrote was that in 1680, they left for Massachusetts. They set sail and they arrived in 1689. And, you know, I'm not like a nautical genius, but I don't think it takes nine years to sail there. <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong. I did not pay attention around any of the like Nina Pinta and Santa Maria mess because I was always anti-Columbus and always shall be. But yeah, so they may have landed earlier, but 1688, 1689, 91, 92, 93 is when the witch trials are kicking up. So that might be where it like flash cuts up there. So she has brought um, another enslaved person named John Indian is brought and then also a child. There is barely any kind of record about the child because he unfortunately passed away. Well, he passed away before the same witch trials began. I'm saying unfortunately but in an enslaved life you know maybe maybe there are other alternatives that are preferable so 
Anyway, John Indian and Tichapo would go on to marry. And as we know, Indian is not an actual name. It was just like a designation because some people believe them to have been black. Some people believe them to have been native or Indian. And so the name Indian was given as a placeholder, you know. And so that's why Tichaba is known as Tichaba or Tichaba Indian. You will see her referred to as both. So we're in Salem. What the hell happened? Like most things, uh, there were people that were not doing what they were supposed to be doing and got caught up and everything just kind of unraveled from there. So Tichaba was very much in the parish household. She especially was charged with taking care of Samuel Parrish's daughter, Elizabeth, also known as Betty, who was nine years old when everything just hit the fan. Um, and it is like important to note that although, not to say although, she very much was an enslaved person. Let's make that clear. She was not treated on the same level. She was not even treated as her own person. She was absolutely treated as property. Um, however, she very much was hands-on with, uh, especially Elizabeth. She ate, fa- she ate with the family. She prayed with the family. At this point, Samuel Parrish had become, uh, the preacher in Salem, which, always gives me like a little chuckle that he's like the preacher and she you know he was perhaps harboring a witch in his own household and if not an actual witch I mean according to me she was but then someone that was accused of witchcraft at the very beginning of all of this and not just witchcraft but also voodoo because they definitely took her uh cultural background and where she was from and her otherness into account when they were deciding to pin things on people so Little Elizabeth. Oh, little Betty. <laughs> this is where all the mess starts. So there's Betty, age nine. There is her cousin who is orphaned, who also lives with the parish family, who is Abigail, age 12. Elizabeth Hubbard and Anne Putnam. Putnam is one of those names, too, that always sticks with me about those Salem witch trials. I don't know if it's because when I read The Crucible, I was like, if I have to read the name Putnam one more time. (laughs) We're all going to be over it. But yeah, Putnam is something that always really sticks out to me. Um, But yeah, so the four girls are together and they are doing what every group of girls has ever done when they're hanging out at night. You know, it's dark outside. Maybe you're having a sleepover. They were doing some witchy spooky stuff, (laughs) which we still do now. I mean, how many sleepovers did you have where you played light as a feather, stiff as a board, or you pulled out a Ouija board? Or, you know, you played MASH and you tried to figure out who you were going to marry and would you live in a mansion or a shack kind of thing. So yeah, the four girls get together and they do the same things that we were doing in the 90s and the early 2000s. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the youths are just making TikToks now and social media content. But before that happened, you know, you did witchy shit when you were with your friends when you were little girls, especially in that like pre-teen age. I think, I don't know. I think it's something to be said for that because- we're running the gamut between nine and 12. And so I'm assuming that um, Anne and Elizabeth, not Elizabeth Parrish, Betty, but other Elizabeth are in that same age range. So what are the girls doing? Well, they don't know how to play mash yet. It hasn't been invented. They are using egg yolks to see their future. They are fortune telling. And what they specifically are asking about is, ooh, who's going to be my husband? <laughs> Does that sound very familiar? So yeah, they are basically using some kind of divination with egg yolks, which hello, we have talked about eggs, eggs, I never know how to say it, we've talked about eggs, and how they are definitely a tool in witchcraft and in all kinds of magical practices, and that's what those girls were up to. 
So they're trying to figure out who their first smooch is going to be. And in this time period, and this is from one source that I read. I haven't seen it anywhere else, but I'm just going to put it out there because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, when they looked into the yoke, they didn't see boys, cute boys and husbands. They saw like scary images like coffins. And that is when these reactions started to happen where they are barking like dogs. They are claiming that they are being poked and bitten and, you know, having fits of convulsion. So basically different signs of possession. Let's pause there. What in late 1600 Salem did it mean to be a witch? It means being in service to the devil. So in all the other times that we talked about witchcraft, you can say, oh, it's being a witch is, you know, the wise woman that you go to or apothecary, or it's someone that casts spells, or it's someone who sees the future, or it's someone who can read cards or, you know, an oracle. In the sense of like puritanical belief in this time period, it is someone that is in service to the devil. Point blank period. That's important because we're going to come back to it. So these girls are lit, you know, <laughs> like they are experiencing some things. Uh, Samuel Parrish is like, uh, what's going on? What, like, wh are y'all okay? And so they call other, over other, uh, preachers, they call over a doctor and they can find no medical reason for what's happening. They are praying and praying and praying over these girls and they are still exhibiting this behavior. So then we're going to talk about the witch cake. I am certain you have heard about the witch cake before. Uh, if you have not, it is a cake that is baked. <laughs> I even hate saying this because it sounds pretty gnarly, but it is a cake that is baked with the urine of the afflicted and then it is fed to a dog and then the dog eats it and they are basically able to suss out who the witch is, who is the cause of the bewitching. So this has many, many times been, Tichuba has been accused of offering up this witch cake idea. It was actually another resident of Salem named Mary Sibley. Mary Sibley was never in any way charged with witchcraft. Basically when she, it came about that they were like, Oh, this is Mary Sibley's idea. She just stood up in confession in church and was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was me. My bad. And everyone was like, no girl, it's cool. <laughs> like She just totally skipped the witch accusations. I don't know how, because I mean, saying make a witch cake using rye and, the urine of the afflicted and then feeding it to a dog is pretty damn witchy if you ask me. So, uh, John Parrish is also involved in this. I mean, John Parrish, John Indian is also involved with this. He, uh, collects the urine. I don't know how of, um, I believe it was just Betty, but it may have been all the girls involved and the witch cake is made and it is given to the dog and these afflictions and these signs of just madness are still happening. So <laughs> here are two ways in which Tichuba has already been accused of witchcraft um, in, in differing versions of the story. One, she was believed to have taught the girls how to do this kind of divination with the egg yolk. She was taught, she was believed to have like under the cover of night been teaching them about witchcraft and telling them stories and teaching them all kinds of spells. So that is one. The other is that she was the one behind the witch cake, which as we know was Mary Sibley. Sibley. But again, she was like, my bad. Everyone was like, no, 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 it's good. <laughs> oh, and the reason that the dog was used was because dogs were believed to be familiars. And so they were either doing the bidding of the devil or 
they were in cahoots in some way. So yeah, that's why they were like the test for the cake. Um, for the longest time, I thought the witch cake was given to the per was the urine was connect collected from the person and then given to a person. And I was like, ew. I mean, ew for the dog as well. But you know, I'd rather just solve it another way. Like we don't have to do this. Please don't give me a witch's cake. But anyway. With the presence of like all of this stuff happening, the convulsions, the bites, the hallucinations, and the bringing in of witches' cake, Samuel Parrish was like, oh, Tichaba, you're a witch. This is witchcraft. You are the one afflicting these girls. Um, I accuse. I accuse you of this. And then little Miss Betty, who, you know, Tichaba has loved and cared for all this time, came forward to be like, oh, yeah, Tichaba is a witch. It was these four girls who... I believe, okay, I believe that they knew they weren't supposed to be doing this fortune telling. And in fact, it was like, at some point after all of these incidents had started to happen with them and the way they were re reacting to everything, one of them finally came forward and said, oh, we were fortune telling, by the way. And I think just like little kids do, they are looking for a way to not get in trouble. I mean, how many times did you almost get caught doing something as a kid? So you just like blamed your older brother, your older sister, or like your quote unquote bad friend for doing it when it was really you. I think that's what happened. I feel like these girls were dabbling in some magic that perhaps Tichiba did teach them, but was also definitely kind of like the part of old folk magic and something that could have come from other areas as well. I mean, we're not 100% clear on that. It could have been Tichiba because I do think she was a witch. But, you know, they didn't want to get busted. And so when they were saying, okay, well, I mean, we were fortune telling like a little bit. Instead of wanting to take the blame in the fall and be punished for that, they were like, but it was Tichaba. Tichaba is the one that did this. And so they accused Tichaba, the first person accused in the Salem Witch Trials. They accused uh, Sarah Good and they accused Sarah Osborne, who were in their own rights. Um, one was like a mentally ill woman that was essentially living on the street and like begging for money. And we talked about in the last episode, was it the last episode? about how poverty definitely played a part in the Salem witch trials because, you know, you were seen and treated as lesser than and also if you were seen as a drain on society, people did not want to take care of you and wanted to wait for that to end. And um, Sarah Osborne was a widow, which as we also remember from that episode, that if you were an older woman, a widow, if you were, you know, living by yourself or childless or whatever, then you could also be seen as a practicing witch. Isn't it just so wild that this all really did start off of like the accusation of children. I mean, I know especially for Tichaba and for Sarah and Sarah, because one was enslaved, one was seen as quote unquote crazy. And one was seen as a widow that they all were kind of trying to be accused and to be scapegoated. But it's just really interesting that this really all did start from an accusation from a child or from a group of children, you know, like, I, I don't know. I think that's just strange because how many times were you as a child telling the truth about someone and about something or someone and no one ever believed you? Everyone's saying, oh, you're making that up. She has a crazy imagination. And you, you were telling the truth the whole time. Whereas the inverse is that they weren't telling the truth, but everyone took the word for it and just ran with it. I think that's really interesting. And also the Tichaba, like Betty of it all reminds me of Chloe. Uh, she's like the most famous ghost maybe in America but definitely at the Myrtle's Plantation in St. Francisville, which would also be a really good place for a bad wish retreat. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. 
But uh, yeah, there's, there's some parallels to that story. And there also is a bit of what I would call now green witch magic and herbology in there. So, ooh, I kind of want to share it, but it also deserves its own space. And I don't want this episode to be the longest of all time, even though it will be. But if you'd like me to share it, let me know. And I will uh, put it into next week's episode or I will put it in the Facebook group or something. But yeah, it's there are very varying parallels throughout history, especially when we look at like the relationship between the enslaved woman like dealing closely with the family and with like the mistress of the house and with the children in particular and just there's so many ways that it did go sideways you know anyway so yeah we have these three women that are the very first accused in the sandwich trials we have tichaba sarah good goody good my favorite name of all time and sarah osborne now how did they differ from each other well, obviously in many ways, but in regards to being accused, how did they differ? Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, until the day that, spoiler alert, they died, one in prison, one by execution by hanging, maintained their innocence. They always maintained their innocence. Whereas Tichaba had another idea, which was, I'm going to confess. I'm going to not only confess, I'm going to give the greatest confession the world has ever seen, and I... I'm going to get myself out of this. Now, not to say that Sarah and Sarah and all the other people that were accused in this time upwards of, is it 125? It might even be more than that people accused. Um, not to say that they weren't smart, not to say that they weren't, you know, trying to get out of it, not to say that they deserved anything that happened to them. But Tichaba definitely had more going for her than anyone expected. She was incredibly smart. She is brilliant. Honestly, <laughs> I consider what she did brilliant. And this is what she did. So our girl Tichaba, she was basically able to accurately assess her position in that community, which is I am an outsider. I am the perfect person to scapegoat. I am the perfect person to accuse. And she was like, mm, you know what? Actually, I was doing those things. I confess. So she gives this like incredibly elaborate, amazing story about how the devil came to her. And I mean, this is the part I was saying where she just like bewitched the crowd. Like she absolutely had them under her spell. They were enraptured, like hanging on her every word. And it is just pouring out of her. And that's, it's just so incredible because she, of course, as the position she had in society was so underestimated and she just took commands of those people of the courtroom of the situation with her testimony. So she tells just this incredible story and she's like, okay, so the devil came to me and was like, I'm going to hurt, you have to hurt these children or I'm going to kill you. And she was like, uh, okay, well, like, let's just go with it and see what happens. So she describes the devil as this tall, white-headed man in a long, dark coat um, who forced her, her to do his bidding. Um, she talked about his annual, animal minions who were a huge black dog, a hog, a black cat, a red cat, and a yellow bird, aka his familiars. She also came up with this monster-like creature who had hair all over its body and walked on two legs. I mean, this is literally this uneducated enslaved person who has spent, you know, the majority of her life in bondage, just again, putting this, these people under her spell and coming up with this story that they were like, because they underestimated her again, they were like, this has to be true. There's too much detail. There's, 
there's just like too many things that she's telling us. And how could this enslaved woman, and you know, they weren't saying enslaved woman, how could this slave girl come up with all of this? There's no way. It like she was so smart. It's just, it's really amazing. So yeah, she had, um, came up with this creature that had hair on his body and walked in two legs. And then she came up with another creature who had the head of a woman, two legs and wings. And then Tichaba says, this is Sarah Osborne's true form. <laughs> like, yo. She, she was like, I'm not going down for this. And I'm just letting you know. And there had been some kind of like accusations leveled at her or some kind of unrest between Tichaba and the Sarahs as well. So she was like, I mean, it's kill or be killed at this point, And I'm, I'm going to save myself if that's what I can do. So she says, this is Sarah Osborne's true form. Y'all like, oh, I like her mind. Okay. So then she comes up with this thing, which is the devil's personal journal, the devil's book, which is the thing that is essentially going to keep her alive through all of these witch trials. And our girl Tichaba again says, oh, I saw Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne's name in this book. And so that's how I know that they are complicit and they are doing the devil's work, which again, which equals that, right? This is a very linear and specific terminology in this time period. So after she says she sees their name in the book, Tichaba then accuses Sarah and Sarah of forcing her onto a pole, held her hostage on that pole as the pole flew across the night sky. So we have her invoking the image of a witch flying across the full moon, flying at night, flying on your, br just the thing. This is why I'm saying I believe that she was a witch because the things that she was coming up with off the top of her head, like off the dome, it's, it's like, how did she even have knowledge of all of these things? You know, it's just so amazing. I, it blew my mind. It blows my mind. I mean, I wish I could have been in that. I mean, I don't, cause I probably would have been, I mean, not probably I too would have been accused of witchcraft, but just to have seen this in person, can you imagine the way that she completely, it, it almost reminds me of that scene in Hocus Pocus where Renef Winifred is singing, um, I put a spell on you and the whole crowd is just under her spell. Right. And they're, they're almost mindless and they're saying they're dancing and dancing and dancing until they die or they don't actually die. But you know, that's like the lyrics of the song and the intent. And that's what I feel like she did to this crowd. I feel like she's like, I'm going to put a spell on you and now you're mine. And it saved her neck by putting her foot on everyone else's. So <laughs> Tichaba is in charge of the girls at this point. She has played this so masterfully. Truly, not only has she saved herself from certain death, she has made herself invaluable. Like they couldn't do anything to her because they needed the information that she was purporting to have. So she is then pressed to give more names up that she has seen in this devil's book, right? And side note, I feel like at some point in the Salem Witch Museum or whatever the heck it's called that I always call it a different thing when I talk about it, there is like a book on a podium that is like in the center of the room maybe, or like off underneath one of the big statues or like big props that comes out of the ceiling. And I feel like you can look into the book. I may be that making that up. It's either that it's this book that we're talking about, or it's a book that lists all the names of the accused. If y'all been to Salem recently, can someone tell me if I'm having a false memory, but I I'm almost certain. Cause I think I went back to my fifth grade class and not only did I tell everyone that I was a descendant of Tichaba, but I also was like, oh, I saw the book and like my name was totally in it. <laughs> Again, me just making up things. 
<laughs> but you know, witch kid shit. That's what I thought. Of. I knew I was a witch. I was a witch kid and I was making sure everyone knew it too. But yeah, Tichuma is just playing this brilliant game where she's like, you have to keep me around because peep this. I know there's more witches around here and I can like definitely sense that there's more evil. And also I may or may not be able to glimpse this book again and tell you who you should really be going after. Like just just so I'm who who would think to do that if I am myself today accused of something I would just cry I would cry and be like it, it didn't do it I swear I would never be able to especially if I was falsely accused of something I would never be able to pull it together to outsmart the people that I should be able to outsmart and to save myself you know and the fact that this enslaved woman who couldn't have been more than a late teenager, you know, early twenties, because she was quite young when she was brought over from, um, Venezuela by way of Barbados that, you know, with just none of the privileges that I have that she devised this way to get herself out of it. It is, I mean, I think it's witch level brilliance and magic again. That's why I think she might've actually been one. Okay. So she is just being pressed and pressed. She is really like the star witness, you know, like she is the key person to really rooting out the actual witchcraft as it is believed to be in this town. And so they're pushing and pushing and pushing. And I will say to her credit, despite the fact that she was like, well, these two Sarah's put me on a pole and uh, that's all their names in the book. Anyone else that she was pressed about, she would say, oh, you know, I haven't seen their name. I haven't been able to look at the book. It's been being withheld from me. And I only just glimpsed those two the first time. She didn't want people to suffer. She didn't want to accuse anyone. She really had played this first move to save herself and knew how to play it to make herself invaluable to save her own skin. But it wasn't like she was maliciously out there saying, oh, I saw this one and this one and this one and this one. And these were, they were doing this, that, and the other. So much so actually that at one point she finally just claimed blindness. She said that the devil had blinded her for like spilling any of the information that she had. And so it was at this point she was imprisoned. Now, being the first accused, being imprisoned, she was, spoiler alert, alert, spoiler alert, she was not executed. She did not die in prison like so many other people met their fate. She was eventually released and she and John Indian were like, peace out, Salem. This is not our vibe and we don't need this kind of drama and disappeared. Never heard from again. There is no other record of Tichaba outside of her being released and leaving. So yeah, that is, you know, beginning to end what we know about her pretty much. And I do wish there was so much more because like I said, I do believe that she was magic. I believe, I believe that she, if not a witch is some kind of magical being was some kind of magical being. And the fact that she was able to just disappear without a trace, I don't know. It kind of almost gives me chills. You know, I feel like there is so much more of her story that's there. And it's just a shame that we won't get it. But also it is miraculous and amazing that this woman was able to talk herself out of this situation and leave it mostly unscathed. I mean, coming up with, oh, I'm blind, so I can't accuse anyone else. Sorry about it. For another Brilliant. She was brilliant. She was so smart. So brilliant. Amazing. So the question we revisit now is, was Tichuba a witch? There are a lot of schools of thought that believe that she absolutely was a witch hiding in plain sight. Like, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. I think that she actually did carry a lot of her, like, cultural traditions with her and magic. And that she was 
you know, perhaps teaching the girls that she she was particularly close with and really had a hand in raising, you know, magic in the way that an auntie or a sister would too. And, you know, there really is a belief that she was a witch hiding in plain sight. She did confess. She did. She confessed. And she worked over that crowd like magic. And, you know, <laughs> would a witch necessarily confess? No, because we want to save ourselves. But someone that isn't a witch definitely wouldn't confess. And that's what happened with everyone else. I mean, unless under the strain of torture, no one else was confessing. And so, yeah, there was a belief that she was a witch hiding in plain sight. And instead of saying, oh, I confess and these are all the things I did, she made it seem like, oh, yeah, I, I was doing that. But, you know, it was just like a one-off thing. But look at all these other witches. Look at all these other people that may have been doing something. And, you know, kind of the same belief is held about Mary Sibley that, you know, again, going back to she was the one who had the idea for the witch's cake. Let's not forget. <laughs> but, you know, was the case of Salem or in the case of Salem, rather, that there were actual witches because there's been witches in every society and every settlement pretty much ever that, you know, they kind of revealed themselves a little bit. And when shit went left, they were like, oh, just kidding. You know, let me go ahead and stand up and say my confession. And I was like, totally kidding. That wasn't me at all. Um, Like, sorry about it. <laughs> but at that point, it had already kind of like reached this fever pitch. And people that weren't guilty of anything were being accused. And people were it was just like accusations are flying around and no one's actually guilty of anything. It's just insane what happened. But in this atmosphere, was it that the witches that were actually practitioners and practicing witches were able to kind of be like, whew, glad it's not me. And it was my, I do kind of have a problem with this theory just because it seems like the witches were only about preserving themselves and taking care of themselves. They didn't care what happened to the non-witches. And I don't think that's in our niche, our, our niches wager. <laughs> I don't think that's in our witch nature at all to not care about anything. If anything, witches are like the people you're supposed to go to when anything happens, you know, we're the ones that take care and nurture and all this stuff. So, you know, part of me, part of the theory, part of that theory that I like don't agree with is that it was done on purpose that they tried to cause all this chaos to, protect themselves you know if everyone's busy pointing the finger at everyone else and they're not going to point the finger at me but I could see that they knew how to deal with it better because they actually were witches and that perhaps it just overall was easier for them to hide in plain sight because of the atmosphere of everything um, but do I think they caused it to try to, you know, hide? No, I don't think so at all. Because that's just not who we are. You know, we're loving and we're caring and in any other society at any other time. Um, even though, you know, we've obviously always faced persecution, <laughs> as we've talked about at length. We are the ones that really take care of the society and of anyone who truly needs our help. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything malicious behind it. But I do think that there were real witches present in Salem. I think there were people that were just accused of witchcraft in Salem and had nothing to do with it and just fit into that long, crazy list we talk about where you just happen to be a woman or your milk was spoiled or your butter had gone bad and that's all they needed. And, you know, it was definitely interpersonal conflict and I don't like so-and-so, so I saw them uh, tying somebody to the tree and putting some kind of spell on them, you know, just anything like that. But yeah, I think there were real witches present at Salem. I don't think they caused the Salem witch trials, but I think they knew how to protect themselves in the Salem witch trials. That's what it all boils down to. So should we even talk about the Salem witch trials now? 
<laughs> I feel like we've already had a big old mouthful about him. Uh, you know, definitely take up a focus because, again, I think she's so important and we need to know her name and say her name. But, yeah, let's talk about him. It's it's just... Oh, yeah, we need to because we have to talk about the um, ergot of it all. The fungus that made possibly was like the culprit behind everything. So, yeah, let's talk about Salem now. Even though we've been in Salem, let's talk about it. So, Salem <laughs> was... A mess. It is the, okay, actually, I was going to say it's like the messiest, messiest period of time, but that's simply not true because, you know, King Henry VIII had an entire reign that was out of control, but Salem was an absolute mess. So let's just do the like stats at the top. It took place between 1692 and 1693. So we're talking about less than a year. <laughs> people think of the Salem witch trials in terms of what was happening in Europe where it was just like centuries and centuries centuries of persecution and execution no 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 uh it all went down in like 10 11 months just the madness of it all so 20 people were executed out of like the 200 plus that were accused and the 100 plus that were actually incarcerated 19 by hanging which trigger warning we are going to talk about kind of the more gruesome aspects of it all because it's it's hard not to. Um, so it's important to point out that the hanging that took place in Salem was not the kind that we traditionally hear about where the neck is broken immediately. They were hung to like strangulation. So they were really, really suffering and were strangled to death. And so it took them a while to die, which is just like, why? You know, if we're going to execute people, which is already so unconscionable and amoral and disgusting, can we at least be quick about it? Like, do we really have to compound these people's suffering? It's just out of control. So yeah, 19 death by hanging. And then there was one who is quite famous, who is Giles Corey, who was pressed to death which is the thing that I think I've talked about like every time I've ever brought up Salem that when you go to the museum, you hear the pressing and you hear these disembodied screams that is supposed to be Giles Corey. And he was basically pressed to confess. They were putting these really heavy rocks on top of him. And for two days straight, they were like, confess, confess, tell us you're a witch, tell us you're a witch. And his response and his dying words were more weight. So he died. He was never actually, um, like convicted of witchcraft, but he did die because he would not confess to it. Speaking of confessions and how this all worked. So, oh, and four people also died in prison before they were able to be released or uh, tried when all this started to kind of like wind down. So speaking of confession, the people that confessed to witchcraft, much like Tichaba, and that were open and willing to name others were not executed. Okay, so if you were a confessed witch, you were not executed. No one that confessed was. However, it was only the people that maintained their innocence that were executed. Make that make sense. Like, it is totally cuckoo bananas. So what comes of this is this atmosphere that is like accused or be accused and Everything was just, I mean, like, okay, so we talked about the Salem, I'm getting worked up. So we talked about the Salem witch trials and like different times in history, right? And it's very easy for us to just look at it from a historical context and like knowing what we know. But could you imagine living during this time where you could just be accused of witchcraft and lose everything? You could potentially be put to death. And not just that there was like this hysteria going on, 
but you're in the 17th century, so you're in the late 1600s, and I mean, there's no electricity, there's no plumbing, like, you're living kind of this miserable, cold existence anyway, and you do believe in the devil and witchcraft and all these nefarious things, and you're worried about, like, attacks from native populations that, I mean, maybe you shouldn't have taken their land in the first place, I'm just saying, and so it's already just, like, the spooky... Uh, like rough atmosphere that you're in. And then on top of that, you're living with the fear of being accused of this thing that would lead to your death. I just can't even imagine what these people were going through. And I think that's why, you know, for many reasons I will talk about in a second, it was able to re reach this fever pitch of accused or be accused because you want to save your own neck. And also you really get swept up into it. Like that's what hysteria is. No one, well, hmm. There were some people that were, I believe, thinking clearly and very aware of what they were doing. But I think for a lot of people, it was just fear-based suggestion and hysteria. And then finally, they like snapped out of it. Everyone was like, oh, our bad. Like, we shouldn't have been acting like that. But, you know, too little, too late for all the people that lost their land, lost their reputation, and lost their lives, unfortunately. So, yeah, let's go back <laughs> and talk about the causes of the Salem witch trials, starting with those damn Puritans. Okay, listen, Puritans in concept are great because they wanted to get away from the corruption of the Catholic church and other churches that were established in Europe and England. They wanted to, you know, really commit themselves to their religion and their faith and their God. Wonderful. But they had that puritanical attitude that we still, especially in America, deal with so much where everything's wrong. Everything's a sin. Like if you wake up and breathe in the morning, you're sinning. When you go to bed at night, if you have a lustful thought, you're sinning. <laughs> like, it's just, that's the reason everyone in America is so freaked out about the naked human body and like premarital sex because these damn Puritans. And honestly, I feel like the Puritans had an obsession with the concept of evil and the devil and witchcraft by extension. Like it wasn't one of those things where we are like, well, we have our God and our faith and we're stronger than anything. It was like, they were obsessed with the idea of this figure existing and how it was going to tempt them and make them sin. Like it's to me, it's almost like they wanted to be tempted and sin. Like they weren't about that puritanical shit either. <laughs> because I, it was just such a central focus, like to their everyday lives that they were always in fear of this creature that, you know, no one even had, it was just it was wild. The Puritans were wild, even though they were so mild. And I'm not going to get into predestination because I'm pretty sure I fussed it up about it before, but just the concepts that I guess I'm going to get into it. Just the concept that like, no matter what you do when you're born, it's already decided whether you go to heaven or hell but you already, but you have to like be good just in case you're one of those ones that was determined to go to heaven because if you're bad, you'll still go to hell anyway. Like Puritans, what's really going on? So yeah, the Puritans, their fear slash obsession with the devil, with witchcraft and with sin, it, it created this atmosphere already of like people not trusting each other, people being wary of like sin being brought into their lives, just a whole mess. So where he talks about this interpersonal conflict, including personal grudges and vengefulness. <sighs> We're going to talk about the Putnams, don't worry. <laughs> so then we have prejudice, right? Which was the basis of a lot of the accusations. Again, you know, we're looking at women that can't have children. We're looking at um, people that are other. We're looking at people of color. We're looking at native people. We're looking at people that are below the poverty line or existing at the poverty line. 
anyone that someone felt they could look down on. And that's again, stemming from the puritanism of thinking that they do have like the moral superiority, that they are like the purest people. They are God's people that are the only ones doing it right. Of course, that establishes prejudice against other people. Good old misogyny because you just couldn't be a woman in any way without being accused of being a witch. <laughs> Superstition. Um, and a lot of this stems from not necessarily like cultural beliefs in the new, let's just say the new world <laughs> in America. What, what do I think I'm talking about? But you know, a lot of these superstitious beliefs came over from England with them of spiritualism and seeing ghosts and seeing specters and stories about witches and goblins and ghouls and all of this stuff. And even though they were, or are, or were, none of them are alive anymore, um, Puritans and like had this faith in God, they very much still believed in folk magic and the superstitions that were culturally around them. And it fed into it. That's, I think that's part of the obsession with like the devil and witchcraft and all that stuff. Local politics. Some people want to increase their own wealth, no matter who has to suffer and will uh, jeopardize the common good of the society to make sure that they have more land and power and money than anyone else. Speaking of which, arguments over land, money, and religion, <laughs> uh, rivalries, that kind of goes hand in hand with the uh, interpersonal conflict, general tension in the settlement or in the village, because like I said, it was a pretty stark, miserable existence. It's freezing cold. You're li I mean, do you ever think about what it would have been like to live in like 16, 17, 1800s? Not that any time period doesn't have its flaws and its problems and definitely for like, you know, certain groups of people. But just to like have to live by daylight, having to just eat bread and water by candlelight and like whatever crop, like, oh man, I would have been so bored. So yeah, of course there's tension and people are just feeling some kind of way about, you know, that kind of existence. Living in a very cold place and having an agriculturally based existence is not easy. So people were, you know, it was kind of just like a fuse ready to be lit. Um, oh, and the town was also not happy about having to pay the high salary for Samuel Parrish as preacher. And as we know, Samuel Parrish's house is where this all kicked off. And also, this is just a personal theory of mine, <laughs> which means it's not credible. But the tribe that was in that was indigenous to the area where all of these settlements started to pop up in New England, what we know now as New England was the Wabanaki tribe. And I'm not saying that I think that they personally put a curse on these settlers, but I am saying that when you steal from the native population and force them off of their sacred lands and enslave them and rape them and pillage what they have, I don't think that goes without notice from the spirits in the universe around us. So part of me a little bit feels like all of this chaos that took place and this just fever pitch mass hysteria that seemingly kind of came, you know, out of nowhere, even though we know there was stuff leading up to it and that was fueling it. I think that, you know, you take something away from sacred people that carry natural magic and shit can happen to you. So that's just my personal theory. <laughs> don't put that one, don't bring that one to the bank, but that's just, you know, something I think about and something I think that we still feel the effects to now. I don't think that it's any coincidence that like America in particular can be a real hot mess in certain ways. And we, well, not me, you and I and us, but a lot of our culture has been built around displacing native cultures and not respecting them and putting them in a position where they're in poverty and deal with all kinds of 
mental illness and physical ailments and not taking care of them. And yeah, I don't know if sometimes we are facing consequences for hurting people and stealing from people that do carry that like natural, natural indigenous magic. Just a thought from me to you. Okay. So those are like, and all the causes and there are even more out there that the ones that I wanted to highlight because we've been talking about that, you know, pretty much throughout. So the ergot of it all, (laughs) this is the thing I remember learning about in high school and being like, what? So you're telling me everyone was just like poisoned by a fungus and that's why people like lost their minds. I always thought it was really interesting take. Um, I will explain in just a bit why I don't necessarily believe in it. Although there are definitely cases of ergot poisoning and ergotism being present all throughout Europe, all during the time of the height of the witch craze. People were definitely ingesting it and reacting to it. And that's how we know how it affects people. So ergot is um, a parasitic fungus that affects grass plants like rye. Rye was the major crop in Salem, Massachusetts. And what does ergot contain? It contains the primary ingredient of LSD. So when we're talking about spasms, convulsions, fits, hallucinations, vomiting, um, you know, just a real trippy experience, man. All of that can be caused by ingesting ergot. Like literally you are poisoning your system. Now, what happens in 1691? The growing season was rainier and warmer than usual, which promoted heavier infestation of the fungus on the rye plants, which means that the grain that was consumed in 1962 was way more poisoned (laughs) than previous ones. Not that poisoning isn't funny, but just like what a quaint eating, right? So in 1692, so 1692 hits, everyone's like, ergot, And that's when all this madness hits and the convulsions and the spasms and the hallucinations. And I saw so-and-so doing this specter thing. And I saw this bird suckling from the teeth of a witch because they're familiars. All this madness comes out. So 1692, we know things are popping off. Then in 1692, there's a drought, which means that it would have killed all the ergot that had been produced by the previous conditions of the other planting season. And so by 1693, no one was ingesting it anymore. And that's when the trials came to an end because, again, this was a very, very short period of time. So am I saying, do I know? No, because I wasn't in Salem. I wasn't eating ergot. I wasn't getting poisoned. What do I know? But, and especially because it is so present in other histories and in other tellings of particularly witch crazes and witch trials. Um, there's this, especially, I think it was like 1597, somewhere in those early we didn't even have the four digits yet. Um, in Germany was, uh, like an early reported case of this. I think the affliction was actually called like St. Anthony's fire or something like that. And they found that people were ingesting ergot and they were having these exact same convulsions symptoms, you know, the ones we've just gone over. So here is why I think it's possible um, that ergot was definitely affecting some of the population, but I don't necessarily think the Salem witch trials, like it's solely responsible because one, no one died from it. The people that were dying were the people that were accused and would not confess to witchcraft. The people that were afflicted, quote unquote, by the witchcraft, no one died. So, mm, I mean, that's a pretty severe poisoning. So at least someone would have died, especially if it was like in being ingested in affecting children. And we know that Betty and Abigail and Elizabeth and Sarah, is that their names? I think so. Were like preteens, you know, nine to 12 years old around there. So that's number one. Number two is that it was 
only affecting women. And uh, so <laughs> how, how could, when everyone's eating the same crop, I mean, it's not like you go to Mickey D's or uh, Taco Bell, you know, and say, let me go pick up dinner or whatever. So how is it that only the women are being affected and showing these afflictions and none of the men are when we're all eating the same crop? And also, uh, Lil Miss Betty and Lil Miss Abigail, the two ringleaders in this whole mess, they were able to turn it on and off. So if you are poisoned, obviously you're not going to like enter periods where you're totally fine. And then periods where you have these afflictions again, you are going to be suffering because your body has been poisoned. And Miss Betty and Miss Abigail would be fine one second. And then someone would come to the house to check on them, to see them, to see what was going on. And they would start up with the theatrics. It would be the barking, the I'm being pinched, I'm being bitten, the screaming, the shaking, the throwing themselves on the floor, you know, jump up and down and do the James Brown, as my mom would say. So it's something that they were definitely turning on and off, which leads us to the Putnams. Get ready. I'm going to drag them. So like, just get ready. <laughs> Sorry. I hope no how there's like a Putnam descendant because I'm about to drag them for real. As we know, Anne Putnam was one of the girls present the night that I still think the four of them were just like having a seance at home and they got busted. And so they decided to act a fool and blame Tichaba. So what happened in the Putnam household was Anne Putnam Jr. Anne Putnam, her mother, one of uh, their servants, Mercy Lewis, and I think she was a cousin. She was either a cousin or a daughter named Mary Walt. No, she wasn't a daughter because she's her last name is Walcott. But Mary Walcott were four women in the household. And they are the second set to start with this bewitched, possessed behavior. We have the biting, the scratching, the screaming, the barking, the convulsions, the spasms. Just the theatrics of it all. Just putting on. So it's so crazy. Let me just say that right now. Mercy Lewis is like a whole ass liar. All of the Putnams are like up to some shady shit. So let's just put that on the table. So when this all afflicts them, like it has afflicted, you know, Betty and Abigail at the parish house, they are like, oh, um, it was Tichaba who did this to us. And Tichaba was like, I don't even know you. Like, <laughs> so basically when the two little girls made, or the four girls made their accusations, but particularly Betty and Abigail, um, it like put it into the atmosphere that Tichaba was practicing witchcraft. You know, Samuel Parrish definitely tried to beat her into a confession. And, but when she had like, when there were these four older women, cause they were starting from like age 17 and on, well, except for Anne who may have been like 14, 15, um, or maybe like 13, but we, we've had three older figures, at least at 17, also making these accusations. That's when they were able to put Tichaba on trial because these were seen as more credible. And literally I'm sure Tichaba was like, okay, so this woman told me to make a witch cake. Everyone is getting on my back because I am a woman of color from the uh, Caribbean first, uh, slash South America. I didn't even ask to come here. Like I got kidnapped and then sold into slavery, which is bullshit. And now everyone's saying I'm doing witchcraft on them and bewitching them. And like, I'm getting beaten into a confession. What the hell? Which is, I'm sure why, because she was so smart. She, and possibly a witch, <laughs> but not, you know, not for the reason she was accused of. That she was able to really take assessment of her situation and be like, okay, so these people have accused me and now these people can accuse me. Like I said, I don't know her. I don't know her, but here we are. So I'm going to get up there and I'm going to save myself. And not only am I going to save myself, I'm going to be completely masterful about it because I can already see how this is going to go for me. I'm very aware of my situation. 
So the Putnams are like, it was Tichipa. Now let's keep in mind that the Putnams were messy boots. They were like, <laughs> you know, every town has that family that's just like real messy and full of drama and everyone knows their story. This is the Putnams to me. And they basically made a practice of collecting power and they were known for wanting vengeance on their enemies. Let's keep that in mind. So Tichiba gives her a legendary testimony, right? And after this happens and, you know, the accusations are starting to come out, Martha Corey is accused of witchcraft by the Putnam household. They're basically, I can, I feel like I can say definitively that the Putnams were using the witchcraft for the witchcraft, the witch trials a hundred percent for their advantage and like had no shame about doing so. So Martha Corey is like this actual upstanding member of society. She's not like Sarah Good or Sarah Osborne where she was, you know, impoverished or she was a widow with loose morals according to these Puritans, but she went to church, she prayed, she did communion, all of these things. And she also, upon being accused, was like, um, this isn't right. We shouldn't be accusing people of witchcraft. Like this all seems fake and like sneaky to me. I feel like people are lying. Like, why are we doing this? Like, let's all have some common sense. Well, in the height of a hysteria and when people are trying to persecute others, no one listens to reason and especially reason coming from a woman. So these messy Putnams give this testimony that is under um, spectral evidence. Is it spectral evidence? I think it's spectral evidence, not spectral testimony. So spectral evidence is basically you can just make up and say that, oh, the specter or the ghost of so-and-so came to my house at night and tormented me because it was purported that witches could, you know, appear as specters to people that they wanted to victimize. So these Putnam, these lion-ass Putnam girls and uh, Mercy, what's her name? Mercy Lewis are saying that Martha Corey, upstanding woman in society, church going, once again, like, could not think of someone that, like, according to their standards that shouldn't be, you know, accused of this in any way or saying that she's showing up and like tormenting them, <sighs> which obviously she wasn't. They are fully lying at this point. Well, not at this point. They've been lying the whole time. And Martha Corey, who is the wife of Giles Corey, who was pressed to death for not, you know, confessing that he was a witch. She also loses her life in the Salem witch trials because she will not confess to something that she's not. And three days after he dies, she is hung as a witch all off of the lying of this household the putnam households which it gets worse <laughs> we'll just talk about how it gets worse so then there is george burroughs so george burroughs has become somewhat of a personal enemy to the putnams because he had borrowed money from them but he was unable to pay it back he was also a preacher and the way that it works is that the town paid the preacher's salary so he went to court and basically was like, listen, I can't pay the Putnams back until I am paid. And so they dismissed it. You know, he won the case. And the Putnams, being like the ancient shit people that they are, decided, okay, well, we're going to find another way to get you back. So much like Martha Corey was claimed to um, be appearing as a spectra, a spectra, a spectra, geez, a specter, there it is, a spectral image. Um, They also claimed the same of George Crow of George Burroughs. I'm losing it with these names. <laughs> George Burroughs. Particularly um, Mercy Lewis. Like I said, she's a whole ass liar. 
she said that he came to her at night and told her that he was um, a witch and he was actually like the ringleader of all the witches and that he was on his third marriage at the time. He had killed his first two wives and he was also like cursing the uh, soldiers that were fighting at basically the front line, like with the native population. So obviously none of this was true, right? No, none of these people are appearing anywhere as specters. Just keep that in mind. And, um, they also, so in like the process of these court proceedings, not only were they lying about Martha coming to them as a specter and, uh, George coming to them as a specter, but in the court themselves, these people are like just giving their testimony and saying like, I did not do this. I'm not a witch. These girls are lying. They would be in the courtroom falling out, having all these afflicted things like, oh, um, she just uh, bit my finger. You, you couldn't see it, but she just bit my finger or uh, she just scratched me right here and would be acting an absolute ass, <laughs> like just making things up. Could you imagine? I mean, we think of like a court of law today where you definitely will see outbursts at times, but you know, order in the court is definitely a thing. Well, not in the late 1600s. It was just people screaming and saying whatever they wanted and rolling around on the floor, whatever it took to, to like convince the court that already wanted to be convinced that these people that they had accused of witchcraft were actually witches, which leads me to this question. And I think, I think I kind of already have answered it to my, for myself in regards to the Putnams, but overall, like, did these girls actually think the things that they were claiming were happening for real? Or were they aware that they were lying and they either just wanted attention or they wanted to take down their enemies or perhaps their parents or family members were whispering in their ear, like, we have to get this person because of what they did to our family. Like, I do wonder because in hysteria, you do lose your sense of reality. You know, the power of suggestion is so powerful. And I do wonder, no, I don't, in the case of Beatty, Beatty, in the case of, <laughs> got real Southern for a second. In the case of Betty and Abigail, I think that perhaps it started as them kind of playing a game or wanting the attention, especially because they could turn on and off when people were around or not. Um, but I do wonder if maybe because they were so young, they did start to really believe these things were happening to them and they were bewitched or possessed. In the case of the Putnam's, I think they absolutely knew they were lying and they were using these suspicious times to work for their advantage. And I mean, there's obviously many people making accusations because hundreds of people were accused, but I do wonder if some of them were really just caught up in it and actually believe that they saw, you know, someone converting with the devil or someone flying across the night sky, or if they all were just using it to their advantage. I don't know. It's an interesting question. And I, I, I feel like it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. For the Putnams, um, you know, they were just trash. So <laughs> again, sorry if you're a Putnam descendant, but I just got to tell the truth. So um, back to George Burroughs. So yeah, he is accused because he owes the Putnams money and he has kind of, you know, gotten out of it with a fair trial. And they make up these lies about him and the sexual evidence really had more impact than you think something so ridiculous would. And we'll circle back to that just in a second too. But, um, he was sentenced to death and he was going to be hanged and the day he's going to be hanged, you know, people would always turn up for a public execution, which is the most morbid thing I think I've ever heard. Could you imagine 
going to an execution like at the public gallows or you know like I, I know I talk about Anne Boleyn and, George, and uh, Henry VIII all the time but just thinking about people going to her execution watching her head being lobbed off and then like collecting her blood with a handkerchief what that's so morbid I would be horrified I don't know I just the culture at the time but it's not for me honey um so people turn up and at the hanging he recites the Lord's Prayer, or as we call it in South Louisiana, the All Father. And <laughs> I think it took me a really long time to realize it was called the Lord's Prayer and not the All Father, because that's what we always called it. But, uh, you know, anyway. Um, and Cotton Mather, who was one of the figures that was really kind of key to the witch trials as well, because he was writing a lot of rhetoric about um, what to look out for and anti-witch and, you know, anti-sin and all of these things. He had previously stated that anyone that was a witch could never say the Lord's Prayer. Like, they physically would not be able to recite it because this is something that's, like, of God, and they're obviously of the devil, right? That that de that very strict definition of what a witch is in this time period. Well, our boy George is like, uh, listen up, everybody, because our father and whatnot says the whole thing. And the crowd actually kind of surges forward and says, you have to release him. He's not guilty. Look what he just did. And Cotton Mather's stupid ass, <laughs> sorry, who's standing right there goes, oh, well, I mean, this man was only able to say that because the devil influenced him to trick all of us. And so George Burroughs was also one of the 20 that was executed, one of the 19 that was hanged to death. So again, even like they don't know what they're doing and they're just like so hypocritical and so hell-bent on this happening no matter what this man who obviously wasn't a wish to start with had the most bogus testimony against him the most bogus showing of these girls in this court acting a complete fool was then able to take this last step and how smart of him to still have this like last-ditch effort to say all right i'm gonna say the lord's prayer because i know of nothing else they will believe that i am not a witch because witches can't do that and he proved it in another way and the consensus well not the consensus but you know the people running this Cotton Mather in this point in this uh, section was still like, oh no, that was just a double trick, and he lost his life. Oh my God, just it's maddening. <laughs> I know I say that every episode about this, but it's maddening. And you know, no one, no one had to go through this. It's just, and it, it's just a perfect chain of events. You know, if if Betty and Abigail and the other girls had not been doing what they were doing, then Tichaba wouldn't have been accused. And Tichaba would, wouldn't have gotten on the stand to say, oh, there's other people that I can like sense the evil with. And then the witch hunt and craze and fear wouldn't have spread like fire. And then the Putnams wouldn't have gotten the not so bright idea, if you ask me, to accuse one of their enemies and accuse, you know, Martha Corey as well. And then it wouldn't have become this thing where like not just the dregs of society according to them, but the upstanding people could be dragged into it too. And so it truly just one thing after another led to everything else and it spread like fire until it hit that fever pitch. So yeah, the Putnam suck. Okay. So, <laughs> sorry, but they really did. Um, Let's talk about now what would be considered evidence in a witch trial, uh, which we've kind of talked on before. But yeah, so we talked about the um, spectral evidence, which is the thing that always stuck out to me the most, that if a person showed up to you in specter or in ghost form, you that was evidence that they uh, were a witch. That it's not, that's just not, it's just not. Like it's the most ridiculous 
evidence that could possibly pre be presented. And yet it was one of the leading ones and it was always taken as fact. Someone, I mean, talk about something that a person could absolutely just make up. It was that. Okay. So then we also had the witch cake. So the witch cakes would be, uh, you know, used as proper evidence in a trial and giving it to the dog and seeing if the dog pointed out the witch or if the dog was similarly affected, just exhibit a witch cake, exhibit B spectral. What? Okay. And then we also have the water test, which I've talked about at length and how stupid it is. But the way they did it in Salem was that a finger on one of your hands would be tied to a toe on your opposing leg or your opposite leg. And you would be put into the water. And as we all know, witches float. <laughs> like That's what, duh, witches are poor, so we float. And, you know, if you sank and you drowned, then you were innocent and you weren't a witch. So that one worked out great. And um, another favorite of mine is the touch test. S stick with me. It's so ridiculous. So if someone was in um, their home or in the court or whatever, having these ongoing uh, spasms and convulsions and spitting and biting and all of this stuff. If a person touched them and it came to a stop, then that person was a witch, the person that touched them. Now, say you're a Putnam and you're just trying to get people taken down because you don't like them and because you feel slighted by them in some way. If I'm trying to accuse someone and I'm acting a fool in the courtroom and rolling around on the ground and all that, and then they walk up to me or are forced to touch me and I stop, and all of a sudden they're a witch. I mean, it seems like I could just fake that. You know? <laughs> so people did. They, it was really so much about trying to take your neighbors down rather than weeding out actual witchcraft, which just is like, can we do better? And are we doing better is the question that I have. Or, you know, if this kicked up again somehow, would we still fall into this atmosphere of like accusing and suspicion. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe so. Maybe it wouldn't be this exact thing, but people are definitely suspicious of each other and people definitely carry, you know, vengefulness in their heart. So that's not cool. Let's <laughs> just all try to be good to each other, you know? Um, what else did I want to say about Salem? I know there's something. Uh... Oh, I remember. Um, there were people that were actually making money off of the Salem witch trials, which also begs the question, if this was becoming a lucrative enterprise, then were people keeping it going because they wanted to line their own pockets? Um, I cannot remember his name, but he uh, was the sheriff in Salem. And basically anytime someone was accused or a lot of the time, he would then go to their lands and claim them for himself. Huh. Interesting that you think you can just do that. And especially because Salem was an agricultural society and based so much on the crops that they were, you know, planting and raising, taking someone's land was taking their livelihood and taking their life. And these people were immediately thrown into poverty. So not only were people claiming up lands for themselves, but also you had to pay for your prison stay as if it's the Ritz Carlton or something like you had to pay for food. You had to pay for bedding. You had to pay for clothing. You had to pay to be released. Even if you were found to not be a witch, which, you know, <laughs> touch and go there. Um, you had to pay to be released or someone had to pay you out. What? So yeah, it, I mean, it was definitely a for-profit thing. And it really makes me think about like for-profit prisons today and how we can go into the criminal justice system, but we don't have time for that today. But they are trying to, through all kinds of means, keeping these prisons populated and overpopulated 
despite how the inmates are treated, because they are making money off of the bodies in there. They, the more people in there and the more that they are getting done, the more money that these for-profit presidents are making. And, you know, that's more or less what was happening in Salem. People were making money off of people being accused of witchcraft. And in fact, one of the, um, the sheriff, gosh, what is his name? Damn, I can't remember. Um, that was George. No, George was the other guy, George Burroughs. I can't remember. I don't need to do this. <laughs> I need to sit here and guess a bunch of names. But um, the one that was going in and taking these lands and claiming them for himself and making quite, you know, the nice profit was the nephew of one of the magistrates who had come to Salem to say, okay, yes, we need a witch trial. Something is going on here. And was basically over deciding that the witch trials would continue and continue and continue. So were they lining their own pockets? Was well, one of the reasons that the Salem witch trials went on for this year is because people were scheming and scamming and making money off of it. I think so, honestly. So yeah, Salem was a nightmare. It was just such a hot mess period of time. And the thing that we always, you know, I think Salem has been quite brilliant as a city to really brand itself as the witch town and legitimate witches live there and go there and celebrate there. But really, when we look at the Salem witch trials, was it a case of actual witches practicing? No, I don't think so. But I still do very wholeheartedly believe that there were witches present in Salem. I just think that they were able to rise above it, <laughs> metaphorically or, you know, literally. Maybe they got in their broom and just got the hell out of Dodge while the heat was on or were able to hide in plain sight like we talked about. Just because I believe that there are witches in every village and town and society. We're just, we're everywhere. And, you know, we've been around since the dawn of man. That's why there's so much that has been used against us. <laughs> like there's, we're in the Bible talking about, you know, they're not, thou shalt not suffer a wish to live. Like we've been there since the beginning. And so I do think there are witches present in Salem. I do think that there was magic present in Salem. I do think that Tichaba may have taught the girls some magic in a way that was loving and familial um, as opposed to trying to like bewitch or injure them. But the Salem witch trials is more about just hysteria and person against person and like the darkness and evils of human nature as opposed to legitimately going after actual witches, if you ask me. Even though I do believe that because of the superstitions and because of the belief systems that they had in place and the fact that they really, really, really did believe in the devil and in witchcraft, that there were definitely some people who thought that they were doing the right thing and thought that they were really eradicating the witches. However, <laughs> I do think most of it was just people taking an opportunity to um to be nefarious and to do to to be not nice people and to get back at others. I mean, and when you see those Salem witch trials wind down as well, a lot of it is that people are writing like letters of remorse and saying, you know, I didn't mean to accuse this person. I was just trying to protect myself. I never actually saw them do witchcraft. I mean, I will say in this time period and within like five years, people had apologized. People had tried to like make amends and the town of Salem had started to like give lands back and had tried to pay like reparations even. So there definitely was an acknowledgement of like, maybe things got a little out of hand guys, but yeah, it definitely is more a showing of what hysteria intention and bad intentions can do to an area as opposed to legitimately trying to root out actual witches. 
if you ask me, you can certainly have a different opinion. You know, what do I know? I wasn't there, but that's what I got from it. Now watch, we're going to have our like Salem retreat and go to the witch museum and they're going to tell the story and it's going to be totally different than everything I said. I thought, and be like, Nikki, that's, that doesn't sound like what you said at all. And I'll be like, you are not wrong. <laughs> but you know, just from studying it and being kind of obsessed with it from being 10 years old on, that's what I think happens. I think it's more about people's fear than the actual threat of witches. Because I don't think that we're a threat. I think we're so good. I think we're awesome. And we do so much good. So why would we threaten and hurt people? That ain't us, you know? Especially because we live in the bad witch coven and community. We live by the tenet of we deserve good. And you only can deserve good if you are willing to put that good back out there. And we all do all the time. So... Yeah, that is Tichaba and Salem and the European witch trials and Lilith and the very condensed history of witchcraft. And we have finally come to the end <laughs> a month later. Okay, so Samhain. Can y'all believe that the Samhain challenge is over? <laughs> I feel like it was more than a month. I don't know. Maybe it's because I've been traveling too, but I feel like October was like, the longest month ever this time, which I'm not complaining. You know, we all love October, but yeah, we have reached the end of our Samhain challenge and I cannot say enough how proud I am of all of you. Even if you didn't make the full 30 days, you know, even if you didn't meditate on it every day, even if you forgot to light your candles <laughs> or you left out your favorite crystal when you sealed the box, I still know that you did a tremendous job and I'm so, so proud of y'all. Um, so here's what we do now that the manifestation challenge or the Samhain challenge is over. And let me say, you don't have to do this. If you want to keep it going for another week, another 30 days till the end of 2019, all you, but if you are ready to, you know, cap it, say we're on Samhain, it's such a magical, powerful day for us. It is our new year. So we are like starting a new now in this moment and really celebrating and feasting and thinking of our ancestors and all those wonderful things. What you're going to do is if you sealed your box, unseal it. And if you didn't, just open it <laughs> and take out the manifestation or manifestations, plural, that you wrote. And I want you to light your four, three, two, one, however many candles you chose to use again and burn your slip and or slips of paper. It doesn't matter which candle you choose to use. Like if you did two black and two white, you know, use whichever one. If you did the black and the white and you added in a red because you were focused on love or green because you were focused on um, abundance or, you know, you know the colors, then I would use the colorful candle for that because it's kind of like you're sealing it in with the magic of that color and that candle itself. But yeah, we're just going to burn. Oh, and don't burn yourself. <laughs> Fire safety first always. So uh, make sure that you have just a little glass of water, a cauldron of water, cool, clean water, whatever you want. And um, you are going to burn it. And, you know, I like the, I always like the idea of cleansing by burning. And I like the idea of the fire coming in and putting in like that last powerful zap of magic and really like sealing it in there, making sure that it goes out in this kind of flame of glory, right? So yeah, you're simply going to burn it. And if you do have like a little remnant, because obviously I don't want you to burn your fingers, <laughs> then um, I would just place it into the bowl of water and just kind of let it disintegrate on its own and kind of come to its own natural end. And if you want, you can also put it down into a bowl and then um, like burn it in there. And then you could use the ash into, you know, another spell or a ritual 
or you can collect the ash and wear it around your neck. Um, you can press it into your grimoire into a certain page or like smudge it on there, or, like write something out with it or oh, depending on how much ash you end up with, <laughs> it might not be that much. You can, uh, you know, press it into a candle that you plan on using it, using, or you can simply go outside and scatter it into your yard or into a body of water that's nearby or just release it into the air, you know, just acknowledging that ash stage as well, because, you know, I'm obsessed with ash and I think it's important too. So you can definitely kind of continue on with that magic and not keep the manifestation alive necessarily because we've gone through the process with that particular one, but just, it never hurts to have a little more magic there. And you've put so much of yourself into that manifestation that you wrote out over these 31 days. So yeah, that's it. You just pull it out, you burn it and uh, with the ash, do what you will. And then you write to me in the Facebook group or you, oh, actually, yeah. So now that it's over, if you choose to end it now, we can share what the things we wanted to focus on is, like I said, I'm very much birthday candles on the cake. I don't share what my wish is. But when we see it fully manifested, or at least we see the steps of manifestation coming into place, I think that's the time. If you feel comfortable and if you want to do it, that you can share about it. And I would love to, you know, see a post where we can make a thread and say, well, this is what I did and this is how it turned out. Or these are the changes I see being implemented and, you know, give each other our magic and just encourage each other and send good vibes out to the stuff we're manifesting on. I think it'd be fun to share it, but again, no pressure. I know some people like to really keep that under lock and key. And, uh, I mean, I always, <laughs> I always say, I'm like, I'll make a wish and not say it, but then like, I don't know, press me an hour later. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I said this. <laughs> I can't hold any water. <laughs> so if you'd like to share how your manifestation journey went and what you manifest and all that stuff, I would love to hear your stories. And so you can send them to me at the Bad Witch Podcast, the Bad Witch Podcast at gmail.com, or you can um, share it in the Facebook group, you know, whichever you feel more comfortable with. I think it is cool. We all share in there and didn't mean to rhyme, but when we all share in that space, because we really, it's such good, positive energy and we really are great at like encouraging each other. And yeah, I'm proud of y'all. I'm, I'm truly very proud. I obviously this podcast is less than a year old. And when I came up with this, I was like, I don't know if anyone's even going to want to do this. <laughs> like, don't be annoying. And you give us homework every week. And then we have to do this damn box too. But just seeing your boxes come together and the thought and the design and the creativity and energy you put into it means a lot to me because I didn't know if anyone would even want to do one at all. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for trusting me and letting me kind of guide you. And I hope that it turned out beautifully for you. And it's the first one of many that you will do. So Whew, we're almost at an, uh, no, we're way past an hour. We're almost at two hours. So I just want to say, um, I didn't get a lot of spooky stories for Salon. So, you know, maybe we can just do that another time, but I do have some Salon homework for you. <laughs> no, don't worry. It's not going to be anything intense. You just had a full month of like, essentially your, um, your like term paper for Bad Witch. What I simply want you to do for Salon is enjoy it and celebrate it in the ways that make you feel comfortable and make you feel happy and make you feel connected to your ancestors and connected to the prone goddesses and to the moon and, you know, be ready to start anew because this is our new year. It's just an amazing time. When I tell you, so three nights ago, not only did I feel, feel the veil thinning out all this time, it's like it snapped open. I had the, my dream was almost, was so crazy. I almost went to Facebook group and was like, anybody else was just me. The amount of people and spirits that came through, the 
messages and the premonitions and the intuitions and just the, the, the my ancestors that showed up. It was the craziest night. And, you know, since that night where I feel like the veil just snapped itself in half, <laughs> I, I feel like every night I... I'm definitely not alone when I'm going to sleep. It's not anything bad or scary. And I've called on Archangel Michael to be with me and protect me just in case. But I feel like my ancestors are right there. And they're just they're just happy to be here with me. And I don't know. I'm just feeling them so strongly right now. So, yeah, definitely try to make a meal and gather with friends if you can in your local coven if you can. And think about, you know, including maybe uh, recipes from your family that you don't have with you anymore to kind of honor them and set a place for them to honor them. Make offerings if you have a, a familial shrine in your home or make offerings at your shrine forever, God or goddesses or angel or whomever you're working with. Um, definitely try to do one for the crones if you can. You know, we just love our crones around here. I can't wait to be one. <laughs> I feel like I'm already tiptoeing on the line, even though most of you bring me back down to earth and tell me I'm in my mother phase. I can't wait to be a crone, as we all know. I might even dye my hair gray for the new year, <laughs> but yeah, just your rituals, your black and white, uh, your black and white, your black and orange candles, light them up. Um, something that would be great too, would be to sit down and do a tarot reading and Oracle card reading, because we want to see what we're approaching next, you know, especially because this is a very spiritual and high power time for us and offer it to other people. I'm going to do that. Um, when I get back to the States, it's going to be a little bit after uh, Samhain, but the energy is still going to be there. So I will post up in the Facebook group if anybody wants to do some quick readings. Um, it's just a great time because we're celebrating, you know, this amazing harvest period we've had and the harvest of all come to an end now. And we're going to be inside for a while and we're going to just kind of enjoy the fruits of our labor. So as much as we're nourishing ourselves from what we did, let's try to nourish each other. But yeah, just celebrate Samhain. Have an amazing time. Talk to the ghosties if you feel comfortable. Light the candles in your windows to, like, guide the spirits along their way. Kiss a jack-o'-lantern. I don't know. Do whatever you want. But I just wish you a happy and safe and prosperous and fulfilling and magical Salon. And we will talk about uh, how yours went. I would love to see what celebrations you did. Please post that in Facebook group or uh, send it to me, too. So last but not least, our crystal of the week. It's actually one that someone was wearing on the trip to Bali with me. And... She said the name of it because people kept giving her compliments. And I was like, oh, my God, smoky quartz. Yes, that has to be the stone. Ever since I kept noticing it on her. And ever since she was like, yeah, it's a smoky quartz. I was like, yes, I am feeling this. Which perfect timing because smoky quartz is linked to the afterlife. And it really gives us as, you know, living beings a connection to our ancestors and to those who have recently passed on which is what Samhain's all about. So it is the perfect stone for this week. Um, it's incredibly healing. It really can just soak up and transmute negative energies. And so it's something that you should have in your crystal arsenal for sure. In particular, it will hold off like negative or intrusive or obsessive um, thoughts that may come your way and just kind of keep those as bait. Those are, that's really good for someone like me with anxiety because I will try my damnedest to kind of keep myself focused, but I always get those like, oh, but what if this happens kind of thoughts that like to really sneak in there and a smoky quartz will be like, uh-uh, get the hell away from our girl. We're not doing that right now. So yeah, it's really, not only can it like take up energy and absorb all kinds of energy around you and transmute that energy and turn into something positive, but it can keep your own like internal negativity 
away from you. It can, you know, it like it'll just kind of skim the stone and keep on pushing and not really like sink into you and affect you in that way. So if you have anxiety like me, it's really great. Um, also with like dispelling fears, uncertainties, just those things that kind of creep in and take root in your mind that you have a hard time getting rid of, especially, you know, if you're a uh, smoking course is really great for me when I'm wanting to start a new project. And instead of kind of counting the, all the things that can go wrong, it makes me focus on all the things that can go right. So yeah, it heals the spirit and it heals the mind in a way where it takes away fear and anxiety, which is something that I definitely struggle with for sure. So yeah, Smoky Quartz, an amazing stone for getting in touch with your ancestors for Salon and for just elevating the energy around you, which I think is a great thing to do when the veil is thinning out, you know, just to be sure that we're keeping it really positive and no little negativities are sneaking in there. Woo! And that is it for this week. <laughs> I hope that I made up for, um, you know, the episode that we missed out on last week. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode and that this little series on like our witchery history and the witch trials and everything. And I just love you all so much. And I'm so proud of you and happy Samhain. And I hope that it is so amazing. And I'm glad that we all found each other and we can all, you know, just like go through these celebrations and milestones together. Also, Australia, I'm here right now. Happy Ostara. I did not forget about you. You know, I love Australia so much. Especially when I've been here, I'm like obsessed. I, I'm going to try to find a visa that will let me move here. But happy Ostara. Happy Salwin. Love you all. Um, but the Bowage Podcast at gmail.com for emails. Uh, Facebook group. The answer is The Craft. The best movie ever. That would be another great way to celebrate Salwin is to watch The Craft with all of your other baddies. Um, what else? Patreon.com slash badwitch if you want to become a Patreon baddie. And then uh, the Teespring link will be in the episode notes if you want to get 25% off using code baddie on all of the merch. Okay, I think that's everything. I'm trying to end this before it reaches two hours. I love you all. Blessed be and goodbye.